Hello and welcome to Contemplations. I'm very pleased to have a, uh, a special guest today, which is Lewis Brackpool, um, who was the person who originally suggested this idea. Although I wanted to include Connor as well, because I know you're a big C.S. Lewis fan. I hear you talking about him a lot. And so the premise of today is that both of you are going to be trying to convince me to read some C.S. Lewis. And we're going to be discussing the ideas and why he's an important author. And that's going to be it. I'm not actually going to be presenting anything. This is going to be novel because I, I don't think there's been a single contemplations um, where I've been entirely naive of what's being discussed. My knowledge of C.S. Lewis is that I've watched the Chronicles of Narnia films. Um, that's it. And I know he was an author and I know that he was Christian and that's about it. Mm. That's all I know. So I'm probably going to be a pretty good placeholder for you at home if you don't know much about him or um, if you're interested in the sort of philosophical side. I suppose we're going to be talking about that as well as the religious side, which um, I'm probably very ignorant of in the grand scheme of things. So hopefully we're going to be learning something. I'm certainly going to be learning something at the very least. So um, I suppose we may as well start with um, what, why do both of you like C.S. Lewis? I suppose who would like to go? Okay, oh, I'm, okay. I'm, happy, to, I'm yeah. happy to kick it off. Go for it. I think that his Abolition of Man, which is one of the short texts that I picked to talk about, we've done a book club on it on the website, but it's worth just running it through for the uninitiated, is one of the best defenses of tradition, one of the best arguments for the existence of an objective morality that you can get to by moral intuition rather than like rationalizing yourself into the position, and an argument in favor of a kind of human nature that you shouldn't be gaslit into distancing yourself from to perceive to pursue your own your own pleasures. When I when I first read it, it was like hitting me like a lightning bolt because it it put in very condensed terms all of the things that I I thought I believed as like disparate threads into one little treatise um, where I'd been churned for the university system, told all the sorts of structuralist subjectivist nonsense before that. It, it properly gave me an immune system against that. And then at the start of this year, I was doing my first symposium for Stelios and looking for a definition of love. And in here, in this pithy little collection, it's only about 20 quid, which is very good. It's all of his theological and philosophical works. Uh, his definition of love is very robust and very interesting. He does a historiography of it because he is a scholar of classical philosophies and religions. And I think he puts it in a very digestible and very rigorous way. Okay. For me, it's... So, for me, I like the philosophical side of Christianity. Um, I was an atheist for 13 years, like a long time, 13, 14 years. I didn't believe in anything. And when I found out that Lewis had a similar sort of experience as opposed to um, coming from... He was originally uh, a believer when he was a child back in... Um, I think he went to board school and he, uh, he grew up, had, uh, had quite a Christian background, but then fell out of that. And then later on down the line, he had, um, well, you could call it a Christ pill moment <laughs> where uh, he spoke a lot with a lot of other theologians and um, scholars, one including um, the writer of Lord of the Rings, J.R. Tolkien, um, who basically not convinced him, but uh, had a lot of to and throw. So his atheist was up for a challenge, basically, in front of these guys. And I think for 13 years, I hadn't really 
given it too much thought on the idea of God and the idea of Jesus Christ and whether he was the son of God and anything like that. I never really gave it much thought. But then the transition from that to theist to then Christian um, was kind of similar in a strange way. So I felt compelled to sort of read his writings, read his philosophy around Christianity. And from someone who was an atheist that went from that complete, complete belief of there is no God to now there is and that Jesus Christ is and was God and the Son of God and the Trinity um, was just compelling. So then I picked up Mere Christianity, which is obviously part of his uh, signature classics. And the way he, he compresses everything down when he talks about morality, when he talks about um, the law of human nature and all of these innate things, the way he describes it is so digestible and makes me think of that in such a different way and stuff that I hadn't even considered. And obviously, we were speaking off camera earlier about he used to do broadcast talks with the BBC. Um, and a lot of it, he would just sit on the radio and just talk about Christianity and what it means to be a Christian um, from someone who went from an atheist to that. And it's just, for me, it's just opened up another door. And it, I've just found it so exciting. And it's, um, it's really sort of helped me as someone who was an atheist, a staunch atheist, just really come to understand a lot more about theology, about Christianity and just what it means. And it's really helped. And the way he does it and the way he words it in his books is just, I don't know, it's so heartwarming and so friendly, and, uh, but so to the point as well. So yeah, that's, that's my reason for... Okay. Well, it is worth mentioning as well that I am the uh, the token atheist on this panel as well, so I, I'm pretty much made for this this conversation to be to be proselytized to read C.S. Lewis, I suppose you could say. Um, but thank you very much for uh, sort of doing a, a Lewis on Lewis there. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I, I don't really know where the best point to start off with is. Well, so. I, I thought a good structure between us would yes. maybe, and, and this is, might be my capital R romantic predilections, to follow the a kind of trinity of concepts, which is truth, then beauty, then divinity. Now this calls back to the line, that, the little couplet that closes John Keats' Ode to a Grecian Urn, where truth is beauty, beauty is truth, and that is all you need to know on earth. So I feel like abolition of man, much like it was for me, might be your gateway drug to okay. this. Because it, it does talk about science. And it talks about what we mean by objective truth. And so mm -hmm. it's quite interesting. Well, that, that has changed quite a lot in recent years. So e even if he's attacking science in a way, well, I, I mean, I don't know what he's saying, but even if he was attacking it in a way at the time um, that I might not have approved of, it's such a different beast now that I can kind of look at it as just, okay, this is a, a sort of discourse in history rather than an attack on my four years of, of academic work and a lot of money and time wasted. Well, his, his criticism is more how science is done. It's not, it's no longer, science and morality are no longer instruments of an archaeological dig to uncovering objective truth. Instead, they're like human livestock management. That's how he sees it. He sees it as an instrument of the managerial class. And this has been instilled from us believing that we should, we should be in this subordinate position to our managers through education. So the start of it, of Abolition of Man, he talks about the Green Book, and he 
euphemizes the authors of the Green Book, which is a school textbook, I believe it's on romantic literature, as Gaius and Titius, but we don't know who they are. But the example he starts out with is how they talk about and how they instruct a school child to think of their own feelings in relation to natural phenomena. So he says, you're looking at a waterfall, and you think this waterfall is beautiful and sublime. Well, this school textbook tells you that actually, it's not that the waterfall has properties of sublime. It's not that it has been imbued with a sense of beauty by a creator. It's actually that you just feel sublime towards it. And so mankind is not a revealer or a recognizer of objective truths. They're actually just going around the world projecting meaning onto things. So there was, this, is, this is the bit that he puts. When man said this is sublime, he appeared to be making a remark about the waterfall. Actually, he was making a remark about his own feelings. What he was saying was really, I have feelings associated in my mind with the word sublime, or shortly, I have sublime feelings. We appear to be saying something very important about something, and actually, we're only saying something about our own feelings. The schoolboy who reads this passage in the Green Book will believe two propositions. Firstly, that all sentences containing a predicate of value are statements about the emotional state of the speaker, and secondly, that all statements are therefore unimportant. What he will learn quickly enough, and perhaps indelibly, is the belief that all emotions aroused by local association are in themselves contrary to reason and contemptible. So this is the marginalization of sentiment, not as a conduit to a deeper truth, that obviously you need to use reason to parcel out and properly order, but actually we can just jettison the world of emotion as something arbitrary that you're putting on the world, and instead you can be fact-checked and fed the true information that you should believe and how you should operate in the world. Mm -hmm. So I, I see here um, a sort of chicken or egg scenario. Um, I'm not sure if you can just intuitively know what I mean by that. But so it seems like the point of contention is um, here between um, the, the scientists of the day and, and what Lewis is arguing here is that um, Lewis seems to think that there's, there's something innate, something inherent, something objective about the, the properties of the thing that gives it that, that sublimation. Um, and the, the, the scientist of the day would say, um, well, this is you know, your perception of it. It's not necessarily an objective property. But I think the problem here is the question, right? It's that, well, obviously the properties of the thing is what makes it sublime, but also our perception of it is what creates the sensation. And so it's, it's kind of both, but you, it, by explaining it, it shouldn't make it um, any less profound. In fact, I think that understanding why something is makes it better, not worse. But is, is it that we're creating that meaning or is it that we are interpreting that meaning? So let's say you line 100 people up in front of the waterfall and all 100 people feel a sense of awe and sublime to it. Could you say that the natural world is therefore imbued with a sense of commanding awe from things like the waterfall? Or is it that just human beings happen to coincidentally have been taught or coincidentally agree that this thing is sublime, that they feel sublime and therefore they attribute it to the waterfall? Mm -hmm. Well, I think that the, the interesting experiment for me, this is my sort of research methodology coming into play, would be you get 100 people, maybe 100 chimpanzees as well, see if the chimpanzees, you know, look at the waterfall more so than they might look at something else. I imagine they probably would. 
Uh, and so you, you could argue that, well, it's not necessarily innate to human beings because, you know, human beings are conscious in a way that um, chimpanzees are not in, and that there, there might actually be something to, sure, there's an element of your perceiving this, right? It's the, the, the emotions are within you, but there's an objective thing in the world that's eliciting it. And my intuition would be that the kind of things that we find profound in in a sort of physical material sense like the grand canyon or a great big waterfall or you know any number of things a, a large redwood tree um these are things which don't seem to be um complicated to the point where it's unique to the human experience and but, think- but but a chimpanzee can't this is this is the rational faculties combining with the emotion. It can't articulate this experience. Sure. It can't philosophize about it. So there is something unique to the human experience that allows them to... Souls. Well, this is the route he would go down, but it's that it allows you to extrapolate this, the essence of a thing, and articulate it and understand mm-hmm. it. So we are observing something inherent in the world rather than ascribing what the world really means. That makes sense to me, yeah. So his, his concern was that when they say that it's all just projection, if this view were consistently applied, it would lead to absurdities like if you f- hold someone in contempt because they've done something actionable towards you, right? so they've stolen your, your lunch money or whatever. So they've stolen from you and you say, I am angry at you. What that would mean is it's not that the action itself is wrong, it's that you feel angry and have attributed your anger to that action. So if, if you're just projecting your sublime feelings on the waterfall and actually the waterfall isn't soliciting a sublime feeling from you, then any action another human being does, mm-hmm. it's not, it, your emotion is not in re- retaliation to their actions, so therefore you can't express any moral outrage. It's all just arbitrary. And so if you're teaching someone that, if you're teaching school kids that, then in order to navigate that confusion, that allows the school kids to become empty vessels for whoever can come along next and tell them how they should feel in relation to a set of certain actions if nothing is, is concrete. Does that make sense? Um, so he says, what I have called, presuming on their concurrence in a certain tradition and system of values, the trousered ape or the urban blockhead may be precisely the kind of man they really wish to produce with this kind of schooling. They may hold that the ordinary human feelings about the past or animals or large waterfalls are contrary to reason and contemptible and ought to be eradicated. They may be intending to make a clean sweep of traditional values and start with a new set. This is how. This is why I've, I've, I've said to you off air before, the Dino is the trousered ape. This is where you get this <laughs> analogy from. If you distance a man from the natural world, the kind of thing that arises out of him certain moral and emotional sentiments, then you make him a creature that only lives by incentives, by consumables. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. He's, he's, not a, he's not a political or moral animal. He's someone that just sort of bumbles through life being happy what he is fed. And you can call him a trousered ape because he's wearing his new River Island gear and he's in great shape. But actually, his, the reason he looks like that, like a simulacrum of a, of a man, isn't because it, his strength has any practical capacity. He's not going to be going out cutting wood in the backyard of his Barrett New build. It's just for purely aesthetic reasons. He's a, he's a form of a form of a form of a man at mm-hmm. that point. Um, and he also just says that this, is, this might not be intentional. So this is on behalf of the people that are saying it's all just a subjective projection. He calls them the debunkers. Like he was the one that came up with that years ago. And he said, they see the world around them swayed by emotional propaganda 
They have learned from a tradition that youth is sentimental, and they conclude that the best thing they can do is to fortify the minds of young people against emotion. My own experience as a teacher tells me an opposite tale. For every one pupil who needs to be guarded from a weak excess of sensibility, there are three who need to be awakened from the slumber of cold vulgarity. The task of the modern educator is not to cut down jungles, but to irrigate deserts. The right defense against false sentiments is to inculcate just sentiments. By starving the sensibility of our pupils, we make them only easier prey to the propagandist when he comes. For famished nature will be avenged, and a hard heart is no infallible protection against a soft head. So, yes, there might well be these inherent sentiments and moral truths baked into the real world, but you need the kind of taste palette in order to fill them out, tap them out. You almost need a certain amount of courage in your convictions, like um, to, to move it to a sort of contemporary example, I've got a sentimental attachment to the sort of rural, quaint English way of life. Mm. And of course, this is something that um, people in the media and on, on the left will say, well, isn't this just some sort of... Antiquated um, attachment? It, yeah, they might say it's, oh, it's a nostalgia for the past and, you know, oh, it's yeah. never helpful. That's normally the, the sort of thing that they'll say. Whereas it, there's, there's something tangible there because when you have emotions, uh, at least as far as I'm aware, at least this is my self-report, um, when you have emotions, normally they're informed by your past experiences. Your, your, your sort of unconscious mind, I know I'm doing this very rationalistically, C.S. Lewis might not like it, but sort of agreeing with him in a roundabout way. So you have... I think you might cross over with rationale to... Yeah, to but it, you don't necessarily process the experiences rationally it, because your unconscious mind deals with a, a wealth of experiences and it feeds you this, this feeling. And so you can even look at it in you know, very simple, almost animalistic terms. You could say that you know, a place that I don't know, a dog likes to go is a place where it's had lots of positive experiences. Therefore, when it goes to that place, even if it's not having a positive experience yet, it will feel one just being in the presence of that place, right? And so there's, there's something um, sort of, there's a relationship there between objective and subjective that seems to be undeniable hmm. and that to, to say that this sensation is wrong, sure, sometimes people can be misguided, but to sort of um, downplay the role of, of sentiment and emotional attachment, um, to borrow an American term, wholesale, seems to be um, very naive. It seems to be that someone is trying to almost put on an air and say, I know better than you, and it's a sort of an ego thing. I don't know whether um, either of you get that impression. Um, well, he's, what do you reckon? He's saying that, Intuitions are a, a signpost to deeper meaning, but you mm -hmm. do need to be able to give them the language and the instruction for how to act on that, how to interpret it, how to play it out in the world. And if instead you're gaslit by the education system into thinking that all of your sentiments are projections, you can be instructed on what is in your hypothetical, rational self-interest instead. For example, oh, the social contracts that we entered into as a society before you were born, even though you didn't sign anything, rationally you wouldn't want to live anywhere else, so you've consented to it, and this is why we can put your taxes up to the highest since the Second World War. You know? Or, and this is an example Louise Perry always gives, when she was writing The Case Against the Sexual Revolution, um, our sexual disgust sensitivity is a good bulwark 
against what we should and shouldn't be doing because evolutionarily it developed to stop us getting diseases and things like that. But if you suppress that and have been told, oh, you need to gather experience and you need to go out and have a bunch of partners. And actually, if you do want more than one person, one bed at the same time, polyamory has no downsides for you. All you need to do is go on Reddit and read the, I tried polyamory and I'm now retching in the bathroom to know that if you try and suppress your disgust sensitivity, it will come up another way. And so don't ignore your intuitions following the incentives that have been fed to you by someone else saying it's in your rational self-interest. Yeah, and I think that there's obviously a, a conscious and rational um, means to override your instincts, right? That's, that, I feel like that's relatively undeniable um, in that you can have a sentiment, you can have an intuition. For example, when I first started working at Lotus Eaters, when I was first on the live podcast, um, it was incredibly nerve-wracking to be there in front of thousands of people. You know, if I purely followed my intuition, my instincts, my emotions, I'd run off set almost immediately. And, and I was just like, no, you're going to stay here. You're going to get used to it eventually. It's going to be fine. Yeah. And so there's this interplay between the, the two things that is important to understand, I think, because once you start thinking about your perception of the world like that, then it's, it's quite... Um, the word's overused now, but it's quite empowering, I suppose. I, that word makes me feel dirty. I feel There's like a lot of cursed shower. words. It is, yeah. I said transition earlier as well. But <laughs> well, it doesn't make you a, a vessel for someone else's will. That's mm -hmm. the main thing he's concerned that the school kids will be, will be turned into. And it, in this being estranged from your instincts, you'll be estranged from human nature. <laughs> he says, here, this is where the chestless men idea comes from. And by chest, he doesn't just mean pectorals, though strength of character is... Strength is downstream of strength of character, but he means heart or connectivity with your yeah. soul. In a sort of ghastly simplicity, we remove the organ and demand the function. We make men without chests and expect of them virtue and enterprise. We laugh at honor and are shocked to find traitors in our midst. We castrate and bid the geldings fruitful. The practical result of education in the spirit of the green book must be the destruction of the society which accepts it. And this was kind of what we were talking about, Carl and I, when we were doing the liberalism debates of if you say that there is no common narrative, if we have value pluralism, if everything from the messaging from the top is purely that of negative rights and nothing holds people together, why do people feel attached to a civilization enough to continue it and to protect it? And so pure subjectivity um, is often an instrument to fill someone else's head with your ideas, but a total hands-off of culture means that you can't ever encourage people to come to the defenses of their communities when they're under threat. And that's what he's concerned about. He's concerned that if we gaslight an entire population into thinking that all of their moral intuitions are nothing but arbitrary, either they'll be the puppets of someone else or they'll be sitting around disinterested when collapse or crisis comes. Mm -hmm. There does seem to be a sort of sweet spot, doesn't doesn't there? In that, if you're completely disinterested in it, then it's going to bring about its destruction. If you overdo it, um, then that's also going to bring about its destruction. So there's obviously some sort of point in the middle. I don't know whether he has any inclination as to where that might be, but you know, I think that um, from what I do know so far, I would imagine that he would be a, a good proponent of perhaps suggesting some sort of discussion about shared values, perhaps. I think a very good example of that is sort of British sense of, of good manners, really, 
in the you know you hold a door open for someone. It's very stratified rules that are universal. Um, mostly, I mean, they should be. I wish they were, but um, for a lot of people who are brought up in a sort of traditional British way, they certainly are. And you know, these rules are quite restrictive in a sense, but also they're understood to to serve it a greater whole, right? Yeah, they 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 attune you towards good character. Um, and he the the reason he would be for a examination of the cross commonalities in different ethical systems. He was a perennialist. Um, for those who aren't big fans of Evola, you can read him instead because Lewis does a, a similar enterprise just with less witchcraft, I suppose. Uh, <laughs> but he, so, and he, he later goes on in Mere Christianity to say that it's not a contradiction for him to be a Christian and also to observe that similar ethical principles prop up in other traditions, which seems to point towards an objective morality. Uh, so he, actually says that the antidote to this systemic gaslighting is, and he uses the word Tao or Dao, um, but he doesn't mean specifically the Chinese philosophy. He means, he means the sort of, the, the transcendental path, which is sort of, um, it, it doesn't reveal itself to anyone, but um, when you follow it, its route, it, it gives you rewards in the way in which you live rightly and therefore prosper. And, you know, there's, there's also in the concept of Taoism, the notion of, you know, things being in balance, which doesn't necessarily mean in stasis, but just that things are as they should, as, you know, there's a sort of transcendental way about things, which I find quite appealing. It's not necessarily um, a, a particularly Christian, by my knowledge at least, way of conceptualizing it is it's more typical of Eastern philosophy, I think, which is why he's probably used the term Tao. He's probably fairly cognizant of that. And I think that it's actually quite a good way of, of looking at things because even though, you know, I'm, I'm an atheist, I still think about things in that way. Um, there's a sort of, there is a right way of doing things both morally um, or practically, you know, in Whatever the sort of metric is, there's got to be some sort of right way of doing things. I was I was going to say he he touches on that on in Mere Christianity, um, where he talks about the law of human nature, um, and he he begins it with the example of quarrelling. So when you see two people having a quarrel, um, it's it's kind of he suggests that there is this moral law. Um, where he argues that our lives have a shared rule book um, and that when we, we quarrel um, and accuse each other of wrong or unfairness, we are essentially saying, hey, you, you broke the rules. And that's kind of what he alludes to. Um, and in other words, he argues that there is a standard of right and wrong that exists outside of us by which we are governed and to which we may appeal in interactions with each other. Mm -hmm. And his, his concept of the Tao, I was going to say, is just the objective moral undercurrent of reality that gives reality a kind of rhythm that it would make no sense not to dance along with. That would be a sense of harmonious existence. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I, I always find this kind of a curious concept to explore because I don't know whether either of you have noticed this, but sometimes there are rules whereby no one's actually explicitly formalized them to you or they were formalized at such a young age um, that you've not really questioned them and you catch yourself following them and 
it went in sort of moments of sort of unsolicited conscious clarity. And it, it's almost like um, there's a, a possibility that these sorts of things, these sorts of social rules are sort of in, innate to us to a certain degree. And um, whether you, I, I don't know how Lewis would describe it, but my sort of scientist's explanation would be that there are aspects of, of human nature baked into us, encoded genetically, that make us behave in certain ways. And therefore, um, it strengthens the notion that there is an objective morality, as well as the sort of um, logical argument of, well, there's obviously an, an optimal way of living alongside one another. And so th those two things can work hand in hand towards a common aim, if you will. So the question is, where does this moral law come from? Mm -hmm. um, and that's what he argues and asks. And he answers that it only can come from a moral lawgiver, which is God. And that's, the, that's his argument. Um, and you know, as, a, as a Christian, I would, I would tend to agree with that, obviously, um, which he goes into detail, obviously. But um, from the basic fact that we quarrel over what is right or fair, we have reason to believe in an objective moral law um, and from this moral law, we are one of many reasons, basically, to believe that could be and is God, essentially. I mean, he does. He does also go on to later in Abolition of Man critique the "this is all the byproduct of evolution" argument. And I think he makes a compelling case. He also takes a sledgehammer to Nietzsche, which I I quite enjoyed. But I I I'll, I'll walk back one step from the objective morality point. Because there are, of course, people that would then say, "Okay, well, we if if it is all if it is all subjective, or you can um, live as if not in concurrent with Tao, what's wrong with that?" And this is the this is the position he got from the Green Book, and these are the debunker types. And he he says, in actual fact, types like this, Gaius and Titius, will be found to hold with complete uncritical dogmatism. A whole system of values which happened to be in vogue among moderately educated young men of the professional classes during the period between the two wars. Their skepticism about values is on the surface. It is for use on other people's values about the values current in our in their own set. They are not nearly skeptical enough. So always be skeptical as to how sincere post-structuralists are about saying everything is subjective because they often hold tight to their own preferential values as if they were objective. So. That's, like you said, if we're quarreling about something, we clearly have a value set. You're not value neutral. You're either trying to attack my values because you believe they are out of lockstep with objective values, or you're attacking, attacking objective values because you have a set of values you want to substitute it with. To watch the full video, please become a premium member at lotuseaters.com.